those who do not have the power over the story that dominates their lives, the power to retell it, rethink it, deconstruct it, joke about it, and change it as times change, truly are powerless because they cannot think new thoughts. True power lies with those who can control their own story. You are the story that you tell yourselves. For, for heritage to uh, have value, for heritage to matter, you have to have a community there that celebrates it and connects to it. It's easy to get um, stuck in the detail and in the process and, and forget that at the end of the day, these things, although they're from the past, they're kind of living and they're carried through to the present and then onto the future, hopefully, if we do our jobs right. Our heritage has shaped who we are as a people and a place today. In this series, we celebrate the stories of Auckland, the Pacific, and beyond. I'm Mark Gosper, and this is the Heritage Talks podcast. Kia ora koutou. For people making the journey to a new life in New Zealand in the 19th century, it was often a perilous journey across the Pacific. For those who did make it here, the welcome was also far from warm. New Zealand legislation was particularly severe on Chinese immigrants, as we have heard in the previous talk with the introduction of a poll tax in various forms. The Immigration Restriction Act, introduced in 1899, prohibited the entry of immigrants who were not of British or Irish parentage and who could not fill out an application form in any European language. In today's talk, David Wong Hop and Lisa Trutman illustrate what this journey would have been like after David's introduction, Lisa looks at the broader Asian immigrant experience, particularly Indian and Syrian, including some well-known Auckland names. Haramai, Tatahi, Ahua. Travelling to New Zealand in the early days was quite different to what we can imagine. Uh, we can imagine when we look at the books and read the material. It's a bit like, uh, what do you call it, reading a Trump report 20 years from now. Uh, it won't have the same flavour. Men were allowed the privilege of washing on the side of the boat. They would stand on a platform with grill, and the seawater would come over, and if they were lucky, a sailor would pump here and bring the water, seawater up and gush there. Ladies, they were not allowed to shower. And so the voyage, which let's call it so from England to here, would take between 100 to 200 plus days the people who went on the boat, they didn't have a change of clothing, or they may have had a change of clothing, but what they wore when they went in on day one, 100 days later or 200 days later when they stagger out, they generally have the same clothing, maybe a little bit of underwear, and this is the sort of conditions that these, these travellers would uh, endure for how many days. So if we just take you back to that time, before we had the migration wave, there were a number of boats that came to New Zealand, come from in Polynesia, and we get the Asian explorers, which Indian, Sri Lankan, maybe Chinese fleets coming down. But the European uh, boats started with the explorers, whalers, and sealers, because in those days, Britain had gone through the Industrial Revolution and people had come off the land to work in the factories. Uh, but because there was technological change, a lot of people didn't have jobs and so there was always the chance to go somewhere else. 
Before the Suez Canal, the sailing route was always from England down through what we call Cape Horn, going down through Africa, and then coming across to Australia to New Zealand. So this became the organized sail route. And in the early days, there were just the normal boats, which were powered by wind. And they had a top speed of about three to four knots per hour, if you're lucky. And so they could be becalmed for days, if not months, sorry, weeks. There was organized travel between England and America, and that was well regulated, well, not regulated, there was a huge number of people that went there, and they developed their own practices and so forth. But because it was from England, and they looked at what was happening with the people traveling to America, travel to New Zealand became more regulated, and so there were rules set in place as to how much water people should have, how much food they should have, and so the captain of the ship, it was his business. How much he got for the passengers and how much he spent on food, the difference was, guess what, profit. So if he could lower the cost of the food and shorten the sailing time, more profit for him. And so there was a, always a calculation as to how much food was required and how much water to take on board. And with these journeys being basically from port to port, they had to take basically dry provisions and sometimes there would be um, live <coughs> animals like goats, sheep, chickens on board and these would be basically uh, slaughtered as they needed on the journey. And so you had a high degree of sort of like contamination with the hygiene problem and the water problem and the food problem and the rats got into the barrels of food and the biscuits got weevils. And so the, it was really what I call an endurance test of these travelers from the time they left England. If they got on a fast boat, it'd be 100 days to Auckland. A slow boat, if it got becalmed, would be 200 plus days. And it all depended on the skill of the captain. And some took risks. And this is where the clipper boats come into play they were designed to capture every uh, wisp of wind. It wasn't all plain sailing. <laughs> they didn't get a, a presentation certificate for, for getting out, and sometimes when they got out at the other end, they stepped out what they thought was level. It might be four feet of water. And so they step out, oh, there's land, and they go straight down to the bottom, <laughs> straight off the shore. So, coming back to this question, mortality rate, quite a number of people, adults, died on the journey, and the mortality rate on infants was very, very high. And the surgeon had to certify these, and the captain would write his report at the end of the journey, I have so many adults, I have so many children, this is how many died. So each voyage would have these details. So it was very high attrition rate. It was very, very hazardous. And the skill of a good captain, especially a clipper boat, was to travel fast, avoid the rush seas, and get to Australia and New Zealand very, very quickly. So that is basically how they traveled by in the early days. Once this, and so the fastest route was about 100 days to New Zealand, went up to 200 days. 
they opened the Suez Canal and that shortened the distance because then they could come through that way. And they also had steamboats, which now brought the average speed up to about eight or 10 knots compared to three knots or minus. And so they had a faster average speed and they were able to get to New Zealand faster. And of course, there's a better boat. They now had steel boats. So that's basically an introduction as to how our early travelers came to New Zealand. They came by boat, sailing boat, up to about 1870, and then by steamboat from there. The journeys were very, very hazardous. So with that, I'd like to introduce uh, uh, Lisa. She has uh, even more knowledge of many, many aspects, so I'd just like to introduce Lisa Trutman. Thank you. Many more knowledge of many more aspects. No, David was supposed to be handling the general stuff and everything else. I've got to get out of Shona's way so she can see what she's doing, bless her heart. Um, and then David just said, look, I want a bit of, bit of cultural, multicultural thing onto this. And uh, he whisked out about talking about the Chinese, which I think was a bit rude. All right, I'll come back soon, yeah. All right. It was. You said you were going to mention the Chinese. You didn't mention a, a thing. And he just said to me, he said to me, I want you to talk about Syrians and Indians. And I was like, okay. I'm only just here to back up. My name is Lisa Trutman. Um, a lot of people keep pronouncing my surname Trutman all the time and everything else like that. The poor, sweet Anglo people. All the Anglophones. Um, but that's okay. I'll forgive you. Yeah, the... It's the thing about the Indians and the, and I say Syrians in quotes, because you know it's not quite just Syrians or anything else like that. There's a long story to that which I will mention. Is these are two of the cultural groups which came in primarily later on in the 19th century. Although, like with the Chinese, Indeed. there were some early examples of people from Today. those parts of the world that did make it here were identified as either Indian or, as they said, Hindu with two O's, or Parthen or Afghan, um, but they were just basically outliers. Um, they were the exceptions. They either uh, came here because they drifted across from Australia or they jumped ship or other reasons. The main um, immigration for Indians, according to the Dictionary of Settlers, which was a large book that came out done by the Ministry of, of History and Culture quite some time ago. They said, oh, uh, forget about Indian immigration until the 1890s. Yeah, no, not quite right. Um, Indians actually came into the country primarily as things like uh, hawkers. And they were selling things not only in the urban areas, but also out on the countryside and everything else like that. And they were doing that really from the 1880s here in New Zealand and from the 1870s in Australia. So just simply saying 1890s and then forget about that until the 20th century is really selling them short. One of the main movements for Indians away from their homeland was for employment. And one of the, the key areas of employment, and I know I'm speaking outside of New Zealand here, was Fiji. Uh, that is why there is an extensive um, a population of, of Fijian Indians, both some still in Fiji and that they've spread elsewhere and they have communities here as well. But it primarily it started with the uh, planters. They were paid $25 per head to provide work for workers on their plantations. And the workers themselves 
had a five years period of indenture. After that period, the worker had to remain in Fiji for five more years uh, or pay their own passage home, which was a bit rough. Um, so, but that wasn't so bad actually for quite a number of the Indians. They did manage to make their way. Coolies, though, were, when they were working on the plantations, yes, they used the term coolies. Uh, so not just associated with Chinese, but also with the Indian workers. Provided with their own dwelling, a small scrap of garden on the plantation, and were paid a shilling a day. Well, if you thought you couldn't really save too much on a shilling a day, uh, some of them apparently managed to do so. At the end of 1886, 3,752 pounds was reported to have been banked by Indian workers at the Bank of New Zealand in Fiji, according to the Christchurch Press on the 27th of March, 88. So as, as they said, oh, well, they're, they're managing somehow. We don't know how, but they're managing. Well, they're managing because they had to, bless their hearts. Coming over here, though, as I said, uh, primarily you have the hawkers, and this is an example of, of Jola Singh Belling. Uh, from a bit later on, 1920, but it's an example of the 19th century rural hawkers that were around. And even though then they were still held up as, oh my God, they're, go they're going to pressure the women to buy their wares, and they're, 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 they're worse than the Chinese. Oh my word, we thought the Chinese were bad enough, but these hawkers, they're, they're a plague upon the rural area. The Evening Post saying, reporting in Sydney, uh, they, they, they are an influx of Hindus into the colonies, I requested the imperial authorities to check it as far as possible, pending the passing of restrictive legislation. So not only the Chinese were getting it in the neck, the poor old Indians were getting it in the neck as well. And the Indians the were supposed to be part of the British Empire, I thought basically citizens of the British Empire. Unlike the Chinese, there by dint of, of various, various treaties when the British beat the Chinese at two separate wars and everything else, these guys are supposed to be part of the British Empire right, right from the get-go, but no, they were our coloured brethren. Statistics. David, you like statistics and figures. I finally cracked into the New Zealand yearbooks after statistics have the Statistics New Zealand have finished, for the moment, mucking about with their website and their website links. I, I, I did a wee bit of a polite complaint on their Facebook page and says, where's the link to your yearbooks? And they said, oh, you mean this one? So, yeah, they got it back. So among the arrivals in 1898 of what they considered were race aliens, a total of 76, three of them were from India in 1898 out of 76 that wasn't apparently too bad. But then, oh my gosh, 1900, it went up to 14. Panic. <laughs> the Chinese went up from, well, it went down from 28 to 26. They managed to get rid of two. This caused a bit of a, a, a worry for the uh, authorities. I thought to myself, we're going to get too many of these Hindus and Parfans and Afghans around the place. 14, for God's sake. So they set up the Immigration Restriction Act of 1899, which set up the fact that you had to actually make an application on a form in any European language. And they thought, that will sort out these folks from the Indian subcontinent. That will sort them out. Probably did, because the next time we see that they're down to three. And so that, I'm not saying it's a cause and effect. 
It may have been, or it may not have been. I mean, it's, it's unwise to say it's a cause and effect, but, you know, statistic, statistic, act, figure. Well, they probably thought, yay. But look at the Chinese went up to 69. That act wasn't stopping them coming in. And yeah, we had all the racist paraphernalia, the Hindu peril, these shell politicians opened the door from 1917. Uh, it's one of the ghastly. I've seen that several times on various books on, on our cultural history. This one, though, from 1914, Minister of Immigration. Sorry, Chandabu, your English is perfect, you know, but your Māori has been sadly neglected, and your knowledge of gold kicking is deplorably deficient, while at tipping New Zealand Cup winners, you have failed utterly. Good day. Mm. It's all right to laugh. You can laugh at it, but the point is, yeah, it's, it's, it's the standard thing. You, you folks have heard this time and time again. The white New Zealand policy, restrictive immigration, trying desperately to, to stop hordes of non-white people coming into the country. But then we come to the real problem which was for the Syrians. Now, term Syrians, and sometimes they were called Assyrians, which I find historically curious, because Assyria, the last time I knew, was before Alexander the Great, um, the Great Assyrian Empire. Uh, most of those coming here, though, from Great Assyria were Lebanese. They were divided into two factions. The Christian Maronites, who were named after a hermit named Maron, who lived around about the late 4th and the early 5th century. And followers of his were therefore dubbed Maronites. And the Maronites actually spread over into Egypt as well. And the other um, faction was the Druze, who adopted the Islamic faith in the 11th century. So Lebanon was split on sectarian lines for centuries between the Maronites and the Druze. It was also affected heavily, of course, by the Crusades, all the Crusades that, that thundered across and, and the um, Arabic and Turkish backlash to the Crusades, the conquest from Mamluk Turks, the Ottoman Empire later on. And then to, to top it off, in 1860, there was a, a civil war along those same sectarian lines of the Maronites and the Druze. And what happened? The British and the French decided to get involved. The French said, we will back up the Maronites, good Christians, linked in with the Catholicism of, of Christianity as well. And the British thought, well, if the French had got that side, we'll take the Druze. So wonderful, great powers, having, having a battle amongst themselves, all just soon after the Crimean War, and all basically to see if they can carve up bits and pieces of territory out of the sick man of Europe, which was the Ottoman Empire. It led to a partition which had been arranged by Napoleon III of France, one of the great failures of the mid-19th century as far as history is concerned. He did a considerable amount of damage, not as much as Napoleon, but yeah, considerable, which led to the Maronites confined to isolated, impoverished, mountainous areas that they basically couldn't do much with. So in the 1860s, this is where a lot of the Maronite Le Le Lebanese were left. Uh, and then, of course, in 1869, though, things did change because the Suez Canal was opened. Before then, the eastern half of the Mediterranean had no direct link with the Indian Ocean. After the Suez Canal, of course, 
vastly different. And to travel through the Suez Canal, even in the days of sail and everything else, was a matter of days instead of whole entire weeks, maybe months, trying to make your way around the Cape of Good Hope. But it was awesome for those in the Levant, as they say, you know, the, the area of Lebanon and Palestine and Syria and everything else, and those who really wanted to get out and try to find some other place to actually earn their living. So among the arrivals in 1898, we're back to the statistics in here. So in 1898, while they were, while they were having a look at the Indians from Syria, um, that's the whole thing, they just didn't bother. If you're from that area, you're Syrian, 13. And it went up to 65. That did get them worried. No wonder they did bring in that act about the restriction and everything else. But in bringing in that act, and they say in any European language, they kind of forgot that actually quite a number of the Lebanese spoke French. <laughs> Last I knew, French was a European language. Uh, there was one file from the Customs Department um, a, from Wellington was writing to Auckland saying, did you deny entry to Madame such and such? And Auckland office said, yes. For God's sake, man, she spoke French. She filled out the application properly, but it wasn't English. We didn't ask for English, we asked for European language. So they had to let Madame so-and-so, poor, you know, middle-aged, middle-aged to elderly lady, they had to let her back in. So after the passage of the Act, they were down from 65 down to 4. They were probably, you know, think, oh, phew, we sorted that problem out. <coughs> so what are some of the famous ones that came through? Sometimes the fate of the Syrian immigrant here was to become well-known and to found a family that achieved great heights. And in this case, this was Asid Abraham Corbin. He had a shop here in Auckland in 340 Queen Street, and the building still exists, I was delighted to find out when I put this up on Time Spanner from the museum's collection. He was born on the 25th of August 1864 at Schwer, a Lebanese village perched on the flanks of Mount Lebanon, according to the biography that's online. Spurred by talks of tales of the riches amassed by Lebanese immigrants to the New World. We were the New World here. I thought the New World was always America, but anyway. You know, I'm quoting the biography. Anyway, he set out alone in 1891 from, for Australia. After roaming the outback as a peddler, he crossed to New Zealand in 1892, where still carrying his peddler's pack, he travelled around the mining towns of the Coromandel Peninsula, Waikato and Bay of Plenty. He then worked for a time as a haberdasher in Waihi and later in Thames. He was a, in partnership with Elias Yarrod Corbin, chances are another relative, the partnership ended in 1900, and then there was a business called Corbin Brothers in Pollen Street in Thames in 1897, and Abraham and Corbin Brothers opened up in Queen Street, Auckland later that same year. The origin of Corbin's wines lies in Acid Corbin's purchase of, in 1902 of a 10-acre block of scrub-covered Henderson gumland. The property had a two-roomed cottage, an orchard, and vines of the Native American variety Isabella. His first three-and-a-half-acre vineyard was planted in a mix of wine grapes and dual-purpose table grapes. The vineyard was called Mount Lebanon Vineyards after where he came from and the firm known as A.A. A. Corbin. Asid, of course, was generally known as A.A. So, and of course, I don't need to go further into the history of the Corbin family. I think that you can, you, that's pretty well known. If you need to have any further information, check out one of Dick Scott's books. Um, and also various books on West Auckland history. It's famous as. 
and there's members, of course, of the Corbyn family around today that are still, still making their name. Sometimes, though, though, the fate of the Syrian immigrant here was brief and unsung. On the 23rd of December 1905, a, a steamer called the Kapa Nui, heading out from Warkworth, called into Waiwera, picking up some passengers from the Waiwera Wharf, and then headed south, rounded North Head. The SS Gale, leaving Auckland the other way with a load of excursionists, was spotted by the ships. They passed each other green on green, starboard on starboard. And then suddenly the, the captain of the Kapa Nui ordered the Kapa Nui to turn starboard, cutting across the wake of the gale. He didn't realise that there was another ship coming. And this was the, the ship, the Claymore, that smacked into the Kapa Nui right across the, the board. At the time, the port light, the red light, had gone out. And a cabin boy, the light's gone out, he headed out to try to relight the wick. Well, he was one of those that got killed. There were six killed on the ship when, when it was struck by the Claymore. Uh, one of those, though, was a gentleman just known as John Fletcher. That is not his real name. He was a Syrian, but he's just known as John Fletcher. He was heading back to Auckland from Waiwera at the request of his mother, who was living in Auckland. His mother paid for his funeral and reclaimed his, quote, box of sundry fancy goods that he was hawking around the Waiwera area and everything else from the customs department. Quite sad. And that's basically all that's known about him, the fact that he died. And sometimes you have the fate of Guyprin Hanna. His real name, or at least the best version of it, is, was Guybrun Hannah Bassel, according to his will. But various spellings. He, had, he put down various spellings. He was known by various spellings. Primarily, though, he is Guyprin Hannah, the name on the left. Born in Batroon, which is a coastal city in Lebanon, around about 1873, he arrived here in 1887, according to his naturalisation application, filled out six years later, and he became a naturalised British citizen. In 1892, he entered into partnership in a drapery and fancy goods business in Queen Street with George Saloon at the corner of Queen and Wakefield Street. Striking ass. Fabulous stuff. Um, and, yeah, there was the accommodation up, upstairs and for, for the two partners and their families. One partner had the family at that stage. Um, but around about this time, 1894, it was reported in Wellington there was a colony of Syrian hawkers had emerged and developed in Wellington. And another 150 of them suddenly appearing in Dunedin. Oh my God, these hawkers are spreading everywhere. The Wakatipu Press complained in 1895 that the countryside seemed to be being overrun by Assyrian and Indian hawkers. It was the threat of the day. Meanwhile, Hannah had set up himself up in business for himself and by himself in 1897 when George Saloon left the partnership. In May of that year, 1897 though, he got raided by the customs department when they pounced on him. And I mean raided. They raided the shop. They also raided his, his rooms. They took all his papers and they arrested him and they had him in the cells. The Wellington department said, what? 
yeah, but the head of customs in those days was this bloke, Alexander Rose. He was a stickler. I wouldn't say he was a nasty man or anything else. I'd term him as a stickler. He was a stickler. If you owe customs duties properly, you should be paying them. And he was very concerned with all this fancy schmancy stuff that was coming in, being imported by all these non-British people. He suspected strongly something was wrong, and he'd been tracking Hannah's business for quite some time, for a number of years. And then he thought, I've finally got you. What he claimed that he got on, um, on Godprin Hannah was a matter of invoices. Hannah was, well, even when he was in partnership with George Saloon, but Hannah was importing fancy goods from not only from Lebanon, but also from France, from French companies, and sometimes from England. Not all of those goods were a problem. The ones from England, they just had an English invoice, the one single invoice, that was fine. But some of the goods from France and from, from Arabian countries had two invoices, one in English and one in Arabic. The English invoice is what they'd show the customs department, and that's what the customs department would judge the duties for those goods is on the basis of that invoice. The invoice in Arabic, though, had a higher value on it, and that was actually the true value. So for quite an amount of this, and actually the, the customs um, claimed £960,000 worth of fraudulently underpaid duties, that was quite a number of amount of goods that was going through that were, had been underpaid as far as the duties were concerned. So hence the raid and hence locking them up and hence then having another raid and hiring translators and special accountants and taxis to convey people all over the place while they were investigating this. And Alexander Rose, because Wellington said, you must give him his papers back eventually. No, 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 I'm still checking. I'm, I'm making lists, and I've seen some of these lists of the figures. He's totaling things up and everything else. It's file on file on file on file on file at the Auckland Archives, New Zealand. I'm only giving the view the very brief rundown on this. I have to do a blog article on Guy Prinhanna and all this sort of thing with this. It's just, yeah, it just went crazy. When they finally got Hannah um, before the courts, at that stage they had also some... Syrians at the court in Wellington, and one of them was George Saloum, and Alexander Rose says, that proves there's a conspiracy. They are conspiring now between all these Syrian hawkers in these various centres. Oh, my God, it's a national thing. Well, George Saloum got off the case, and he ended up later on in 1907 being naturalised. He would not have been naturalised if he was a criminal or anything else, so he got off. And as for Hannah... They had a day in the court. Mr. Toll, representing the Crown, says this is the Crown's case and it's serious and it's £960. And then on day two, Hannah, just cool as a cucumber, said, oh, I made a mistake. I'm so sorry. I didn't see all this. I shouldn't have done this. I'm so sorry, but that was an honest mistake. And the Crown's, at that stage, probably thought, the costs are ramping up. As I said, cat 
taxi fares and costs of interpreters. And the interpreters had to be Lebanese, and there was one of them was the I remember the Bouzade family and everything else. And he was he was charging per hour coming in and and charging for his travel and everything else. The costs were mounting up. So the Crown said, "Do you want to do a deal?" And Hannah said, "Oh, I'll do a deal of four hundred and fifty pound instead of the nine sixty. Crown says, "Done." Alexander Rose was beside himself. There were letters. You've left. And so no, the Crown says, no, 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 this is a good thing. We'll get some money back. We won't be spending all this money trying to get this money back. In the end, Mr. Hannah, he was even cannier than that because he delayed and he delayed the payment. And Alexander Rose was saying, you owe us money, you owe us money. Oh, this has happened. Hang on a second. I've got to get this and this. And he ended up basically paying £100. Canny ass. By 1902, he'd moved out of the corner store and it was taken over by Asid M. Shuri, who's pictured there on the left. He took over ownership of the Olympia skating rink in Kitchener Street between Willisley and Victoria Streets. Not for terribly long, though. Um, July 1907 saw a new owner that there, and by the early 1910s, the rink was pretty much history, soon to be forgotten. So he only had it from 1905, and that's him on the left-hand side there, which excited me no end to find that in the library's collection. Um, his business eventually shifted to Victoria Street West, in 1916, during World War One, he was de suddenly declared to be a to be a subject of the Ottoman Empire, and of course, during World War One, that meant he was an enemy alien. Well, Hannah was not going to take this lying down. He wrote a three-page letter to to the government saying, "Excuse me, but I was naturalised on this date." And not only that, he said the Lebanese have been fighting the Ottomans for years. We have been trying to get our independence. We have been trying to break away from this empire. We've been helping the British uh, army over there and the Palestinian Corps and everything else. We're not, we're not your enemy. So he got a very nice letter back and the governor, governor general said, look, this man is clearly not an enemy alien. You know, the Lebanese, where he comes from, from Lebanon, they are not Ottomans. So he was allowed to continue on his way. After the war, he made a name for himself selling Guyprin Hanna brand pure olive oil with the rising phoenix surrounded by, you know, the olive, the, I would imagine it's olive tree leaves growing out there. I don't think it's a laurel, the laurel leaves. I think it's, it's olive trees. Um, and that was plastered everywhere in the newspaper ads. So if I'm researching Guyprin Hanna, most of the time I ended up with olive oil. Um, as can happen with family historical research. If your relatives suddenly, oh, they've done this product, oh God, it's that product again. I don't want that product. I want to find out what happened to the daughters and what happened to the shop and uh, the product. But anyway, um, this lasted right through to 1939 on sale, even after Hannah himself had left New Zealand in 1935, never to return. He died in Batroon in 1953, father of a number of children. He remarried. He did leave behind a landmark here in Auckland, though, and it's this building, the Guyprin Hannah Building on the corner of Victoria and Albert Streets. 
built in 1914 by Hannah as a warehouse and leased office space. That earned him quite a bit of income. So not only was he selling the olive oil from across the street, he was leasing out space here. for, And it was leased out for a number of uses and for sometimes for schools as, as, as well as offices and warehouses and everything else. And it's a beautiful building. In, in, our, in our streetscape today with things being bold, hopefully they don't do that. That actually is scheduled, though, with Auckland City, Auckland Council. Hannah's story, amidst the confused spelling of his name, uh, at one time known as Griffin, G-R-I-F-F-O-N, -F -F Hannah, uh, is, was made easier to research for me, though, by the visit of a rather famous grandson of his in 2017. Gebrin Bassel, Minister of Foreign Affairs and Emigrants, oddly enough, emigrants in Lebanon, he was Minister of Emigrants, Visited Auckland, he walked the Isle of St. Patrick's where his grandfather walked when he married Rose Patch and made the headlines in the local Catholic news newsletter, which meant I was able to find him on Google. That was a big Yahoo moment for me. Because I had thought, I had thought when Guy Prinhanna left, left New Zealand and said he was going back to Lebanon in the 1930s, World War II pending, I thought, He's gone to footnote land. <laughs> and then when I found this, and I found the surname Basil, I then thought, hang on, I wonder, because he still owned the Guy Prinhanna building, would there be documentation here in New Zealand? And there was. The copy of the will that, and the probate that was actually lodged in Lebanon in Arabic and English is lodged in the Auckland Archives New Zealand and in Mangere. I have photographed it. It is glorious. Yes, and it told me more information about the family and the children that he had later on after he went back to Lebanon and everything else. So fabulous stuff. So thank you, Mr. Gebrin Bassel, for his visit. He came here to the library, I understand, and the librarians helped him with the research and everything else. So thank you very much. He apparently has, eh, there's some, some people who don't like him. He's a politician, of course. You're always going to have some people that don't like him. Some people do. He married the daughter of the president of Lebanon, so he's a good. Um, but yes, good on him for actually turning up. And there is actually somewhat of a likeness, I think, between him and his grandfather. Quite, quite good. Quite good. Um, so, yes. So in a way, Guy Prinhanna's long journey seemed then to have come right back to where he had arrived in a strange land to make a better life for himself. And at least now, though, we know more about the man behind that beautiful building on the corner of Queen and uh, of Victoria and Albert Streets. Thank you for listening. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for tuning in. The Heritage Talks podcast is produced regularly for your education and enjoyment. Talk notes are found on the Talks page at soundcloud.com. Come back whenever you like and feel free to add the podcast to your favourite RSS feed or iTunes. All links are in the Talk notes.